1: As a body of believers, we love one another. We love the church as the people of God. We desire fellowship. We appreciate each other's company. We desire each other to grow in the Lord. We desire to grow in our knowledge of each other for the sake of deeper relationships, for greater fellowship and spiritual growth. We strive to do what we can in our serving and loving of one another, and yet sometimes we can't do everything we want to do. We can't do everything we believe we are called to do because of God's sovereignty, because God's plan does not allow it, whether it's through abilities, times, circumstances, whatever it may be. And so there is a tension there in the Christian life, there's always a tension when someone tries to understand the sovereignty of God as well as the responsibility known as the free will of man, but there's a practical tension when we are trying to do what God has commanded us to do, and yet, clearly, He puts up roadblocks. Now, we understand the sovereignty of God. We understand without His plan of salvation, we wouldn't desire that fellowship, Within his particular plan for each of us, he has brought us to this specific area. And within this specific area, he has brought us to this particular church, which brings us back to the desire for fellowship with those very people, those who are sitting in this room among you. We see God's sovereign hand in all of it, yet... As we continue in the outworking of our affection for one another, we recognize that we are still within the wonderful purposes and plans of His sovereignty, which both frees us and limits us. And as we try to be good iron that sharpens iron, strong brothers that lift up other brothers, faithful sisters that other sisters can lean on, we know that we can only do that which God in His sovereignty allows. So, in understanding this tension, we look at examples from the Apostle Paul's own life. We will see this very truth as he closes out chapter 3 of First Timothy. We will see on the one hand his affection and desire for the Ephesian Christians, on the other, the reality of life and circumstances within the plan of God. And these truths will, on the one hand, grow us in our proper longing for each other, and on the other, challenge us in our trust in God's sovereignty. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15 say this, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We have a lesson here on what the church is. We have a lesson here on why Paul wrote this letter, but we're going to learn about affection and God's sovereignty in four sovereign desires of Christian Affection, In other words, four aspects of Christian affection that we should all have, yet can be aided or held back by the sovereign plan of God, at least the outworking of that affection. Four sovereign desires of Christian affection. The first desire is the desire for fellowship. The desire for fellowship. Again, in verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. We know already, halfway through the book, that what Paul is writing is not merely a letter of friendship. He's not just catching up with Timothy or giving an update on his own life. This is Holy Spirit-inspired instruction for Timothy as he pastors the church at Ephesus. And in his letters... He often cites a desire to be with those he writes to. Whether it's to see them, to impart some sort of spiritual gift, or to correct them, there is an innate God given affection that Paul has for God's people. In other other words, Paul clearly desires fellowship. And since we only read his words, we don't have a video or even photographs of his actions, it can seem that he's all talk because we only read about his desire to be with them. But the book of Acts and church history fill in the blanks and we know that he often, at the risk of life and limb, travels to be with these churches. Now here he says that he hopes to see Timothy and the members of the church before long. It means soon, although a more accurate translation would be sooner than seems possible. Looking at the circumstances, it doesn't look like I'm going to be there soon, but I hope to be there sooner than circumstances and my schedule would indicate. He hopes to be there soon because he values the fellowship. In fact, he hopes to be there sooner than present circumstances, again, would seem to indicate is possible. But he knows that that may not happen. So he is writing this letter due to the uncertainty of the future. And the, These things that he refers to would cover everything that he has written, that we have seen so far, and also that we will see in the entirety of the letter. And we're not even halfway through the epistle, and we already know that what he has written is essential for the church. This is especially true... When we recognize that this was not for Timothy's eyes only, but for the wider audience of the Christian church. Now we see God's sovereign plan in this. As unbeknownst to Paul, this letter is written for the sake of giving instruction to all churches and Christians that will ever exist and have ever existed since he wrote that letter, not just Timothy and the Ephesian church. Paul didn't know this. And yet we see God's sovereign plan in this, even as he was writing those letters. Now, because of its content, there is an urgency to the matter. Now, this is unlike anything we would encounter today. For example, if there was a pastor today in 2024 that was discouraged in his ministry, he was seeking out the advice of an old friend who's an old pastor but the older man is unavailable for some time or is unreachable. In the end, the pastor, the young pastor, will be okay because he has the Word of God. In fact, he can turn to this very book, First Timothy. Timothy couldn't do that. And the church was unaware of God's instruction on some of these matters. And so, with an understanding that what he wants, visits soon, may not align with what God is going to do, Paul writes this letter now, not only in recognition of a possible delay, but also in the wisdom of knowing that he may never make it there at all. We'll talk more about the content of the letter later. What I want to draw out for you here is Paul's desire to be with Timothy, physically present with him and his church. Look at the verse again. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Today, we leave notes. We send emails. We write texts. We make phone calls so that we don't have to be there. It's more convenient. Those forms of communication, while appropriate in many circumstances, replace being with those to whom we are communicating. You can send an email to your boss rather than having to drive back to work, wait for his secretary to let you in, and have a meeting. Modern technology. Yet, here is Paul writing what he would otherwise tell Timothy in person. He has already written it, but he still wants to see him. He wants fellowship. He doesn't say, I'm writing these things to you so that I don't need to actually come. He says, I'm writing these things, but I still really hope to see you in person. It's like a grandmother who fully plans to be there for Christmas, but knowing that the snowstorms are coming, decides to ship the gifts to, his, to her grandkids. Does that mean she's not going to do everything in her power to be there on Christmas Day since the gifts are already en route? No, because the point of her coming is not just to deliver gifts. The point is to be there and to enjoy family. And then this is the exact point of coming for the grandmother And it's the same as Paul's, to be with family. It's not just about delivering a message. It's not just about instructing. It's about being with people. My friends, my family, do you long to be with your spiritual family? Is this just a thing you do? Is this just a chore? Or do you think about them all the time? Do you just pray because you said you would? Do you just pray because you feel like you're obligated to? Or because you love them? You long to be with them. And you can't be by their bedside. You can't be in the hospital and pray with them in person. And so you pray at home, but hope to come before long. Do you long to be with God's people? Or do you just come, listen, check off the box, go, everyone saw me, reputation's intact, and then off you go doing your own thing. Off you go appreciating the, the company of unbelievers more than your own family. Maybe you feel obligated to hear the sermon. And so you live stream, maybe you listen later, you come if you can. Maybe you have an obligation to bring the coffee or the sound equipment. So you drop it off and then just want to leave. Maybe there's information that needs to be passed along. So you send a text or an email or upload something to the cloud and then you don't interact with the believers that you're sending that information to. Or, do you see the church as family and long to be in their presence? Still listening to the sermon... Dropping off the coffee and emailing the document while still desiring to come to them soon. The task may be complete, but true affection and desire for fellowship can never be satisfied this side of heaven. If you truly love God's people, no amount of time, no depth of conversation, No volume of singing can fully satisfy because you long. It is imperfect. It ends, at least here on earth. Do you want to be with God's people all the time? Do you desire for fellowship? A second sovereign desire for Christian or of Christian affection is the desire for flexibility. We're going to break up verse 15 into three different points, and our first point in verse 15, the desire for flexibility, comes from this phrase, but in case I am delayed. I've already mentioned that Paul's understanding of the reality of God's sovereignty plays out, he knows, in personal circumstances, but let's take a deeper look. This was not a time of modern transportation. So going from where he is to where Timothy is would take a long time. But that's not the only issue involved in potential delays. Paul is, as we know, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Timothy is not his only disciple. The church at Ephesus is not the only church he ministers to. He has other ministries, other churches, other letters that need his attention. What's more, he is still a human being that has essential needs to carry on whatever he is doing, and that can cause delay as well. Whether it's making and selling enough tents to fund his journey or simply falling ill and being unable to travel. Again, without modern transportation that is enclosed and climate-controlled, traveling while sick meant being exposed to the elements while exerting enormous amounts of energy that is already lacking if you are not well. Not a good idea to go out. Also, healing would take longer without modern science as well as the phasing out of the gift of healing. And aside from the practical and more to the point, Paul understands that God is in control and may not grant his desires no matter how noble and God-honoring they may be. No matter how much you want something and how much that want corresponds with the Scriptures, the reality is that it may not happen. You may not be able to go and see those people. You may not get to attend that service or that Bible conference. You may not even get your sick spouse or child to the doctor on time or fix the pain that they endure. We trust God and His sovereignty, but we understand not everything is possible. But whatever it is, ask yourself this simple question. Do you trust God? And within your affection and desires for other people to obey Him and honor Him, do you trust God? It's easy to trust God after it's done. Do you trust God in the midst of that trial? Do you trust God in the midst of of whatever is happening that people are stuck and cannot pull over for the ambulance that you are sitting in with your baby girl? Do you trust God? And if you do, you will trust what He is, and what He is is sovereign. When I say that we must desire flexibility, what I am talking about is a desire in your heart to trust whatever comes your way, and recognize that God is in control. Uh, This must be practiced in conjunction with everything else we will talk about today. Otherwise, an intellectual grasp of God's sovereignty can become an excuse for disobedience, hopelessness, and inactivity. In other words, this is not a call to, as they say, let go and let God. But when you have done everything you can to fulfill the requirements laid out in the Bible, we can praise God for His plan when things don't go as hoped as well as when they do. The beauty and wonder of God's control is that He doesn't toy with us like puppets, nor are His purposes to fulfill a mischievous agenda for some sick form of pleasure No, God's control is for our good. Turn to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. It will begin with the phrase, and we know. We have an intellectual knowledge of this because of Romans 8.28. But do you believe it? Does it play out in your life? Romans 8.28 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the verses that follow this verse give us the foundation of this good, which is our salvation, starting with God's foreknowledge and predestination and calling us. But then the thought crescendos with this phrase. If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? It's a rhetorical question in that an answer is not expected because the answer is obviously nobody. It's not that nobody has anything against you. It's that nobody can change the plan of God and the good that He desires and is working out in your life despite what your emotions and circumstances may tell you. Nobody can thwart the good plan of God in our lives and the practical accomplishment of it. If He wants it to happen, it will happen. But this question, if God is for us, who is against us, is also rhetorical in nature in that its purpose is to get us to think, to get us to ask ourselves that very question today and every day in our lives. Do you really believe this? Do you really believe that the all knowing, all powerful, all controlling God is working out all things for your good, as he defines them, not our world or us, such that you recognize that no force can stand against you? Not man, not beast, not demon. This past week, one of the ladies that works on our church's accounting encountered a devastating situation that many of you can relate to. Every single week in 2023, she worked on a spreadsheet for our church's finances. And this past week, she couldn't find it. It was gone. Even her relative, who works professionally in IT, could not recover it. She texted me that she was so upset that she was physically shaking. A year's worth of work gone in a second. It wasn't just her work. She didn't want to let our church down. Then two other ladies that help in separate areas of our church's finances called her helped her find all the same information that was lost but recorded in our church software. Her response was, and I quote, God is great. He made me lose the sheet to show me the easier way to do the finance report. Do you believe that God causes all things to work together? Together for your good. Two weeks ago, my immunocompromised son caught what many of you have caught that's going around. But as it has been his whole life, when he catches something that is mild and lasts a couple days for everyone else, for him it is intense and prolonged. By Friday of that week, he was coughing uncontrollably any time he exerted his muscles when he did something Extra physical, like walking up the stairs, getting out of bed. That night, Friday night, he went to the doctor who diagnosed a viral infection in his lungs that the doctor feared could turn into pneumonia. He gave my son some medicine in the office and then prescribed a steroid inhaler. By that evening, the prescription that he needed right away had not been filled. The app said, still in process. Come Saturday morning, my son had an uncontrollable coughing spell every time he moved. He was worse. The pharmacy app still said the, pro- the prescription was in process of being fulfilled. Nobody was picking up the phone, so I grabbed my oldest son, headed over there, stood in line, and the pharmacist told us, that they realized on the day before on Friday that the medicine was not covered by insurance, so they had sent a message to the doctor for a different medicine, and even if it wasn't approved, they didn't have the dosage in stock until Monday. Why didn't they tell us on Friday that it couldn't be filled? So, we would have time to ask the doctor to change it or to send it to another pharmacy before they closed for the weekend. Why didn't they tell us that? They should have called us. The pharmacist should have known. If this is what the doctor prescribes, he needs it now. We couldn't wait till Monday. By Monday, he could have been in the hospital with pneumonia. After getting in line and standing in Safeway for 45 minutes, getting in line over and over again and bugging the overworked pharmacist in his understaffed pharmacy to the point that every time I was second in line, he started grabbing my sense information because he had memorized it by this time. My wife called the on-call nurse who had a direct line to the doc- on-call doctor. Between her and the doctor, they were able to change the prescription to the higher dose that the pharmacist had in stock just 30 minutes before all Safeway pharmacies closed, four hours after all CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens pharmacies had already closed. But something interesting came out of my wife's conversation with the on-call nurse. The nurse, of course, asked, how is he doing? Much worse, my wife said. To which the nurse replied, The medicine the doctor gave him in the office yesterday should have made a radical difference. Get him to urgent care right now. The urgent care doctor picked up on something our pediatrician missed. My son had a sinus infection, antibiotics were prescribed, and he was back at school on Monday. Here's the thing. If... The original prescription had been fulfilled on Friday. We would not have contacted the on-call nurse, and we would never have known that he should have felt better, and we would never have gone to urgent care, we would never have gotten those antibiotics, my son would not be here this morning, and he would have missed yet another week of school. All because what we wanted, what we thought we needed, what we hoped for and expected did not happen. Do you believe that God causes all things to work together for your good? Even the things that frustrate you and make you angry. Do you believe it? If you do, then you need to have an understanding and a flexibility that reflects that trust in the sovereignty of God. And as we have seen, Paul doesn't use God's sovereignty as an excuse to disobey in other areas or to avoid pursuing greater ministry. We've already seen that he is writing this letter in acknowledgement that things may not go his way. And as we continue, we will see why he wrote this letter in our third sovereign desire of Christian affection, the desire for fruit. The desire for fruit. Continuing in verse 15, he says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The word conduct is a comprehensive and general verb. It speaks of human conduct in the sense of applying specific principles Paul is, of course, referring to the principles that he lays out in this book, particularly in regard to one's relationships within the church. And that's what he's speaking of, the church, when he says the household of God, not the church as a place, but as a people or more specifically as a family. And we know from the New Testament that the people of God make up God's dwelling and household as such. There's a certain standard of behavior among this family that must be consistently followed. And this is true of any space. There are rules at your work. There are assumed but unspoken rules at a dining establishment. There are guidelines at school. And there are rules for the people of God. And whatever the place... The powers that be make certain demands upon those who come and expect those demands to be met. For us, that authority is the Word of God. The reason for this is because we are the household of God. We are not just a family, we are the family of God. The rules for Google are in the Googler's employee handbook. The guidelines for the NBA are in the NBA official rulebook. And the conduct expected of the household of God is found in the Word of God. And speaking of the Word of God, it is literally a written word that the Holy Spirit wrote using men, which is why Paul was moved to write these things down. For him, look again at why he wrote these. So that believers would know how they ought to conduct themselves. By the way, on a major side note, speaking of God's sovereignty, if Paul was with Timothy, these things would have been spoken to Timothy, not written down, and we would not have them. Back to the text. To know something is not just head knowledge, but the possession of something knowledge, insight, skills to accomplish a goal. And the goal is the proper conduct becoming of a born-again Christian. And the word ought tells us that this is not optional. It is necessary. But the necessity of this conduct is not limited to the walls of this building or certain aspects of your life. Much like the employee handbook or sport rulebook, the Word of God is only applicable when in the sphere that the rules were made for. While at work for the employee, while playing sports for the athlete, and for the Christian, the rule book has no limitations. Not physical, not circumstantial, not emotional, not geographical. It is not a superficial conformity to the rules while at a certain place. It is a lifestyle emanating from a heart attitude, the right heart attitude, at all times. You can't go on vacation and just because no Christian you know is there yell and swear at every waitress at the restaurant. Steal and treat people rudely. Not share the gospel. Yell at your kids, whatever it may be. This is all the time. Everywhere. And to reiterate, the reason this is mandatory at all times is because we are the house of the living God. Listen to Ephesians 2.19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Hebrews 3.6. Christ, Christ was faithful, rather, as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope, firm until the end. It's Hebrews 3.6. As the household of God, we must obey. But back to our outline. Paul desires fruit or obedience among believers because he first and foremost seeks God's glory. He doesn't just stop with the desire for the conformity of people who call themselves Christians. He desires God's glory, not just in this life, Not just in his life, rather, but as far as is possible in affecting that same mindset and behavior in others. So, again, we need to ask ourselves some questions. What is your desire as a member of the household of God? To what lengths are you willing to go to help others mature in Christ? Is it just a convenience when you're here on a Sunday morning or at small group or you happen to see someone, or are you so desirous of fruit in other people that you will go to great lengths to help others grow? What is it that keeps you from challenging others? For some, it may be laziness. Not wanting to take the time to go to the lengths that would be the modern equivalent of Paul writing a letter with a pen that didn't have ink built inside of it, on parchment that was hard to come by, expensive and coarse, praying over every word, agonizing over not being able to be there in person, sending someone to travel long distances in rugged terrain with heavy clothing and unpadded sandals to deliver that letter. Whatever it is in your life that would equate to going the distance, to encourage others, to challenge others to spiritual growth. Are you willing to do it? Do you seek out God's glory through others' growth to the degree that Paul had to? Circumstances and technology have made things different. But are you willing to use those circumstances and technology to go to great lengths to help other people grill. For others, it's not laziness, it's a wrong view of relationships, preferring to keep the peace, refusing to offend. So, biblical admonishment goes out the window, not to mention the saving message of the gospel to the unbeliever. This could be a result of the fear of man, probably some other form of pride as well. For still others, It may simply be undervaluing the profit of integrity and godliness. And this comes from undervaluing God's glory. Perhaps it is a comfort, knowing that you're saved and she's saved, so why make things harder and awkward? Or maybe you simply don't have a high view of God or an understanding of the devastation of even the seemingly most innocuous of sins. Or maybe... In that friendship that you so value, you simply don't know why or understand why God gave you that friend in the first place. It's not just to have fun. It's not just to hang out. It's so that you both can make each other more like Christ. Hebrews 10.24 tells us to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is not just the mission of the church as a whole. That's a mission of every believer in every Christian relationship. You are not going to help that Christian brother or sister in Christ head towards completion, which means perfection in the Greek, in Christ, by just hanging out. And you're definitely not going to help it by having them over, shh, quiet, just us four, don't tell anyone, and doing things that dance in gray areas rather than saying, you know what, I know this isn't unbiblical, but for God's glory, let's not do it. And, of course, there's Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We must desire fruit, not only in our own lives, but the lives of others. And fittingly, it is fruit in our own lives that will accomplish this goal as we obey through biblical fellowship. So we're looking at desires, sovereign desires of Christian affection, We've seen the desire for fellowship, flexibility, and fruit. Finally, the desire for faithfulness. The desire for faithfulness. Look at the end of verse 15, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is similar to the last point, but Paul here explains that who we are as the household of God is the church, and the church upholds the truth. We're reminded that we are a people of a living God, not just the household of God, but the church of the living God. This would resonate with Timothy and the Ephesians as they were living in a sea of pagan statues and dead idols. And what this phrase, living God, reminds us of is that we are not serving one of those. But we are also a people of God who were created, saved, and placed into this family of this God. He did it because He's alive. We are also reminded that He continues to be with us and work in us and through us. To put it simply, He is a living God, therefore He is present. And as we continue, remember that Paul is referring to all of us as Christians and not some entity, not some ministry, He says that it is we who are the pillar and support of the truth. Individually, you make up the pillar and support of the truth. Both of these terms speak of that which holds and upholds the truth. Pillar is a support or buttress, not merely decorative, but actually supporting the structure. Support is a foundation on which the structure rests. And what we collectively support and hold up is the truth. Not in the sense that if we fail, God's word will prove to be false, but in the sense that on this earth, in this life, it is the church that is tasked with the role of upholding the truth. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Who else is going to do it? Not some professor that sees the Bible as good literature, not the unbelieving world, and surely, not the Christian cults that say the Bible plus something else. It is us, the Christians. Not merely through studying the Bible, not only by sharing the truth, but as we saw in the last point, by knowing it and living it. This is not a call to debate theology. It is a call to living out the truth. Because if you don't live it, anything you say in your debate holds no ground, because what you are trying to defend demands that you live it out. So it does no good just to know it and debate it, protect it in that sense. We must live it. And by using the general term truth, Paul is referring to all of it. Even the parts you don't like, even the parts you disagree with, this is all aspects of divine revelation. It is our responsibility to uphold it without doubting, without wavering, without questioning, not giving in to society, not yielding to your emotions, not giving in to your hunger for comfort. We must all read it, study it, memorize it, proclaim it, and live it. We're all very aware that the biggest hindrance to the integrity of the truth these days in this world is not the world but actually those who claim Christianity. Without all of us humbly accepting the whole counsel of God and living it out in its entirety, we are not being the pillar and support. You can't be a pillar and a support if you take a sledgehammer to this chunk because you don't like it. And We see this. Many of you come from churches like that. Well, you know, they uphold the gospel. It doesn't say the gospel. It says the truth. All of it. Every aspect of it. From the roles of women's to men to the ending of sign gifts. All of it. We must uphold all of it. And when we don't, it doesn't work. Because we are all the household of God. And we must all do our part. It's like one of those trust exercises that your boss made you do. You all need to put your arms out otherwise the guy toppling off of that table into your arms is going to hurt something. And sure, you may still hold it up if one of you goes and takes a phone call but the rest of us are straining and hurting and exhausted. We must all uphold the truth. All it takes is just one wrong note from just one single instrument in an orchestra of 120 to make the whole thing sound off. And that's all the audience will remember. You cannot just rely on me. You cannot just rely on Grace Church of the Bay Area as a ministry or entity. It is not enough to nod your head when you stream your favorite pastor or apologist. It does nobody no good if you collect and even read solid Christian books on Christian living if you aren't actually believing and doing the living. Do you find your joy, fulfillment, and confidence in being a bulwark of the truth? of God we're not talking about or we are talking about Christian affection and you have to love God's truth to love God's people and you have to uphold God's truth to uphold God's people are you a faithful pillar and support of the truth all of it I understand there are people who wrestle with certain aspects of it. It doesn't feel right. Maybe uh, there are things that you were taught growing up, and though you recognize that you were taught improperly, that the church was wrong, uh, it was an error or liberal or whatever it is, there's still that lingering habits and thinking, those red flags that pop up that shouldn't be red flags simply because something I said sounds like something That past, pastor said, and you get confused. You need to pray about that. There is grace. There's help from the Holy Spirit. We need to study the truth, and we need to study the truth with a mind towards glorifying God, which means, as much as humanly possible, you don't take into account that Muslim that keeps rejecting the gospel that you so long for to be in heaven, but he's only got a couple weeks to live. You can't let your emotions and circumstances dictate what you want to believe in the Scriptures. Whatever it may be, comfort, money, popularity. I know so many people who once claimed that they were believers. They were Technically, deacons at Grace Community Church in LA because they were small group leaders in our ministry at UCLA. Now, not walking with the Lord. And I've shared this with you before, but it's been some time. None of them, none of them just say, you know what, I've been studying the Bible and it just doesn't seem true. At face value, it doesn't seem true. It's always the pursuit of some sin. For one girl, she just wanted to marry for money. People said, that's not good. You need to marry a Christian. And then if they have money, that's fine, but you can't just try to find that. She found that, and her friends confronted her, so she just left the church and rejected the truth. Another one, because he had homosexual tendencies and is now out of the closet, took that desire and then interpreted the Scriptures and said, this can't be right because if God is a God of love, He would love me for the way He made me as a man who longs for other men. We want to have compassion on these people. We need to speak the truth in love, but we need to understand that sin is sin. And we can't say, you know what, I don't want to offend Him. If I say that's wrong, he'll stop coming to church, and so you allow that sin to fester. We can't do that. I'm not saying be a jerk about it, but we need to speak the truth firmly. And you know what one of the greatest things about the fear of man? That's, I believe, the greatest hindrance to evangelism and we don't often say it, but it's probably the greatest hindrance to speaking the truth to other believers, is that we're scared. We're scared that they're not going to like us. We're scared they're going to reject us. It's going to hurt our feelings if they say no. We're scared that they're going to fire us, not come back, find another church, not want to talk to us again, not invite us to the family Thanksgiving dinner anymore. But you know what the greatest thing is? Is if you can Remove all of your feelings and personal thoughts and your biases and just speak the truth. It's not you. God's a big boy. He can take the heat. Just repeat what he says. And if they don't like it, you say, you know what? I love you. That's why I'm not telling you how I feel. Because if I told you how I'd feel, it'd be really bad. And we probably both have bloody noses right now. I'm just telling you what God says. And if you don't like it, I'm here to help you. But take it up with Him. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who created heaven and hell. He'll take it. Give the truth. And we've all found ourselves in situations where we're just starting to say stuff that isn't from the Scriptures. And then you have no default now because now it's all you, and you're just stuck. You're stuck in that debate. You're stuck in that argument. And you can't just say, well, God says, because you know God didn't say it was you. You got mad. You got frustrated. And that that happens. That's okay. We love God. We want Him to be glorified. But stick with God's truth. Because it's one of those things that we see all over the Scriptures. Even if you don't act like it, you have the title on your desk, over your door, whatever it is, written on your heart, you have the title, pillar and support of the truth. Now, whether you want to act like it or not is up to you, right? We are called Christian. We are called redeemed. We are called those who love others. We may not act like it, but that is the title God gives us and seeds us as, right? Hey, man, this guy's blowing it in the, in the games, right? But ESPN said he's the number one quarterback this year. He sure isn't acting like it. That's still his title. And so they say, he better start acting like it. But the beauty of it is in those polls, in those rankings, if he doesn't start acting like it, he's going to lose that ranking. You never will. And so again, we default to God's sovereign grace. And we look at him when we say, wonder of wonders. I'm not going to do this to hold my ranking, I'm going to do this because I already have it. And I know the cost that was paid so that I could have it. And as we look at everything we've seen this morning, it really comes down to two things. Do you truly love people? And secondly, do you trust in God's sovereign plan? I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible and wonderful privilege to give people who are unworthy and sinful and can't do it on our own power, but you called us you redeemed us, you strengthen us to do this. Whatever it may be, Lord, whether it's using your sovereignty as an excuse to not do what we are called to do, whether it's just a lack of love and desire to be with other people, whether we see Christians as hard and ministry and unbelievers are more fun and we can relax, whatever it is, Lord, give us this intense affection like you gave the Apostle Paul that we would do whatever it takes to encourage, challenge, love, and be with God's people. And when we are with them, may our time be fruitful, not just fun, not just shooting the breeze or complaining about things, but may we have a biblical stance to encourage and challenge one another. And wherever it is with those people or people in the world, may we know and love your truth and love it so much that we want to know it more and live it so that we uphold it for your glory.